This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from comedian Lee Camp, The Breakdown from The Nation magazine, Le Show, Counterspin, Media Matters, The Young Turks, The Bugle, and The Jimmy Dore Show with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from Rocket Boom. Osama bin Laden is dead. So the question is, where does America turn now? Where do we aim our giant guns, our hordes of money, and our truckfuls of Lady Gagas? Bin Laden defined us in a lot of ways. He was our arch nemesis, our key enemy, our primary adversary. So what do we do now that he's gone, now that he's no more? What did He-Man do after Skeletor, G.I. Joe after Cobra Commander, the Thundercats after Mumra, Alter Boys after Father Murphy, the X-Men after Magneto, Batman after after Joker or Sean Hannity after Logic. What do you do after your enemy number one is no more? We have a choice. We can continue bombing endlessly in places like Afghanistan. We can continue to operate 900 military bases worldwide. We can continue to be the bitter, angry man who was beat up on 9-11 and now takes it out endlessly on his children. Or we can use Bin Laden's death to conclusively move on. We finally banged the hot chick who turned us down in high school and dumped beefaroni in our lap in the middle of the cafeteria, causing us to subconsciously spend the following 20 years making sure nothing that humiliating ever happened again by behaving like a douchebag to everyone we ever met, just in case they had secret beefaroni plans of their own. So it's finally time to move past it, to stop treating immigrants like shit, to stop sending people to be tortured without any evidence against them, to stop grabbing everyone's balls at the airport. Let's move on like Mario Lopez after Saved by the Bell instead of dwelling on it and harping on it like Screech after Saved by the Bell. Let's move past our PTSD because otherwise we're going to grow old and never know a world where people's balls go unmolested. And that makes for a pretty uncomfortable episode of the Thundercats. This week, there was some very big news starting Sunday night. Of course, the president announcing that United States Special Operations Forces had killed Osama bin Laden in Pakistan. And we got a whole bunch of questions from people uh, related to those events. Andrew Hackard, who is one of our regular listeners, loyal listener, and I think we've asked one of his questions on the show before, basically said, can you do a special breakdown that talks about what this means for the war on terror? And I think it's a great idea, and I just so happen to have the perfect guest my friend and colleague Jeremy Scahill. He's a Puffin Foundation writing fellow at the Nation Institute, author of the best-selling Blackwater, Rise of the World's Most Powerful Mercenary Army. He's been on Democracy Now! He writes for us. He's got a great piece up right now about JSOC, and he's working on a book around some related issues. Jeremy, welcome to The Breakdown. 
Good to be with you, Chris. Okay, I think maybe let's start with the actual unit that carried out this mission, and we'll divide this into two parts. First part is, what does what happened in Abbottabad, Pakistan, reveal about the war on terror as it's currently being waged by Barack Obama? I mean, first of all, what it shows is that President Obama has really doubled down on this Bush administration policy of targeted killing. That is that the United States reserves the right to go into any country, including an allied country, with or without permission of that government, to kill people that the president has determined to pose a national security threat to the United States. And what it also does is it busts the meme that a lot of right-wingers and Republicans have been pushing that President Obama is somehow soft on terrorism or is some kind of a dove. So what we see is that this policy of targeted killing is, is going to be at the forefront of U.S. counterterrorism policy under Democrats and Republicans alike. The stakes are very high, though, because of the fact that the United States seems to have gone into Pakistan without the Pakistani government's permission or knowledge. And so you have what appears to be this crisis right now between the Pakistanis and the United States. But the reality is, Chris, that going back at least five years, the Pakistani government has tacitly allowed U.S. Special Operations Forces to hit in Pakistan as long as the Pakistanis have been able to deny it and condemn it. This is not the first time this has happened. It's just the highest profile case that we have. So what you're telling me is that this kind of operation in which we have some small group of highly trained American members of the military go into a country and target someone identified as a terrorist, that this has happened before. This is not new. Right. In fact, a few days after Osama bin Laden was killed, the Thursday after Osama bin Laden was killed, U.S. forces struck in Yemen and did a targeted strike against two suspected members of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. And, and that was the fourth or fifth incident in Yemen under President Barack Obama where U.S. Special Operations Forces or the CIA have struck. In 2009, President Obama authorized a hit against a Shabab commander inside of Somalia. In the case of Pakistan, this has been going on for a very long time. One of the things that the WikiLeaks cables revealed was that as of last December, the U.S. Embassy in Islamabad was acknowledging that U.S. Special Operations Forces were acting unilaterally at times inside of Pakistan and other times acting in concert with certain special units of the Pakistani military or the Frontier Corps, which is a federal paramilitary force, to actually go after and target and kill militants. So President Obama has actually been very aggressive in authorizing these targeted strikes. And in September of 2009, General David Petraeus, who at the time was the commander of CENTCOM, issued what's called an execute order that authorized U.S. Special Operations Forces to strike off of the stated battlefields of Iraq and Afghanistan. And that was an update of an order that Bush had issued in 0304. So Obama really has not only continued it, but has sort of expanded the battlefield and is hitting much harder in places like Yemen and Somalia than Bush ever did. So the sort of operational part of this, my understanding, is part of the military that's called the Joint Special Operations Command, or JSOC for short. You've written a lot about JSOC. You've been doing a ton of reporting on them for quite some time now. Tell us a little bit about what JSOC is and how it changed or expanded over the first few years of this administration. Right. I mean, well, the Joint Special Operations Commander, JSOC, really grew out of the failed 
World Mission in 1980 to rescue the Americans during the siege of the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, Iran. And that was a catastrophic failure. That mission was a failure. And so the special operations community came together and said, we need to build up an elite unit that can respond to terrorist threats, hostage situations, international crises, and ensure that they're not going to fail. And so they started to build up this really elite force that would draw from all of the branches of the military and take the best of the best and create an effective all-star team of special operations forces. And so you had the rise of JSOC really start in the 1980s. In the 90s under Clinton, they had a, a sort of twofold mission. On the one hand, they would carry out very discreet counterterrorism operations, in some cases targeted killing, although they were very limited under President Clinton on the one hand. And then on the other hand, they were to respond on U.S. soil to weapons of mass destruction threats or provide discrete security, counterterrorism security at things like the Olympics in 1996 when they were in Atlanta or inaugurations. And JSOC is the only unit of the military that is permanently exempted from posse comitatus, the U.S. law that prohibits the U.S. military from engaging in operations on U.S. soil. When 9-11 happened, Chris, the Bush administration put JSOC front and center at the U.S. strategy to hunt down and kill anyone that the White House designated as a terrorist. And what happened, and this comes from the reporting that I've been doing over the years, what happened is that Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld and Vice President Cheney essentially took JSOC out of the conventional chain of command and began just directing them to do targeted killing operations that would be shielded from congressional oversight. In other words, they had them jump into the arena that was the sovereign realm of the Central Intelligence Agency and had to be briefed to Congress. By using JSOC and a military operation, they were effectively able to use this hit squad without any oversight. And that was the time when General Stanley McChrystal was running the Joint Special Operations Command. After Rumsfeld left as Defense Secretary, Robert Gates started to kind of clean up the ship and said, we need to bring JSOC back under the basic command of the U.S. military. What you've seen under President Obama is an attempt to put the CIA and JSOC back on the same team. This war that Rumsfeld was waging against the State Department and the CIA in favor of the JSOC types was unacceptable to President Obama and to Secretary of Defense Gates. And so when you see the kinds of hits that take place, like the one we saw against Osama bin Laden, it's largely a result of mending the fence or the differences between JSOC and the CIA and putting all hands back on deck. And I talked recently to a member of the uh, House Intelligence Committee who told me that that really was a tremendous accomplishment to end this kind of siphoning off of resources by two very important entities within the U.S. national security apparatus. President Obama uses these guys widely. And my understanding from talking to people in that community is that they have a tremendous amount of respect for him. I will say, though, that while everyone is celebrating the successful hit against Osama bin Laden, this force has also been responsible for some of the worst massacres of civilians that we've seen in Afghanistan, namely the killing of pregnant women in Gardez, Afghanistan in February 2010. And I went and interviewed the survivors of that raid. They tried to cover it up when they first killed these women and blame it on a Taliban honor killing. And it turns out that it was JSOC that was fed bad intel. And they went in and they killed all these people and tried to cover it up. JSOC also killed Linda Norgrove, the British aid worker, during a botched rescue attempt. So, you know, there's two sides to this coin, at least. There's the successful ops against bin Laden and probably countless other people who we can't name. And then there are the times when it goes wrong and they end up killing civilians and potentially open the door for blowback. 
you talked about the sort of celebration that's going on, and I don't mean that in the country and the people outside the White House. I mean, in terms of the degree to which the administration is, you know, I think congratulating itself on successfully carrying out this mission, okaying, etc. Let's turn now sort of projecting forward. What do you see the effect of this being in terms of this endorsing or expanding what has already been the trend, which is to sort of shift the war on terror away from large occupying armies and these sort of more targeted operations. Is that what we can kind of expect? And what do you make of that, whether that's a good or bad development? Well, I mean, it's already on. And in fact, this is very similar to what Vice President Joe Biden was advocating when they did the initial Afghanistan review when uh, when President Obama took office. Biden wanted to have a real focus on targeted killing operations and try to draw down the more massive conventional force presence in Afghanistan. And this is really the future. In fact, almost everyone I've talked to that works within the special operations community is sort of chopping at the bits and saying, who's next? Talk to a guy today who's a veteran of U.S. intelligence and military intelligence operations. And he was saying, you know, we should go and kill Adam Gadan, this so-called, you know, American Al-Qaeda guy. He was saying, you know, we can we can go after him next or Anwar al-Awlaki, who's another American citizen that is hiding in Yemen and putting up videos on YouTube calling for, you know, jihad against the United States. So, You have two things unfolding, Chris. On the one hand, the question of what are we going to do about Afghanistan? Are we going to build up more conventional forces there? And then on the other hand, the shadow war, which has been raging through the Bush and Obama administrations. Whether or not it's right, well, I mean, that in some ways boils down to a moral question of what you believe about or a legal question what you believe about targeted assassination. You know, the U.S. generally has a ban on assassinations. The way that the Obama administration has gotten around it in the case of bin Laden is by saying it was a military operation against a commander of forces that are threatening the national security of the United States. You could look at it from the Pakistani perspective or or the perspective of people in Yemen or Somalia or elsewhere that say the U.S. has no business coming into sovereign territory unannounced and killing people. It is a targeted assassination, but the U.S. has asserted the right to do that. So I think that it's very dangerous road to go down to believe that you can kill your way to peace, that you can somehow kill every quote-unquote bad guy. And I loved what you wrote in this current issue of The Nation magazine about that very issue. You know, we characterize people as bad guys worthy of death, and then we go and kill them. Well, we need to step back sometimes and say, when we kill that one individual that we've determined to be a threat, are we not in the process creating scores of others that are going to rise up against us, particularly when civilians are killed? So I think we need to take a really sober look at the possibility for blowback before we co-sign this idea that we're going to be able to kill all the quote-unquote bad guys until there are no more. You can't kill terrorism. You need to take away the motivation for people to get involved with acts of terrorism. Jeremy Scahill is a Puffin Foundation writing fellow at the Nation Institute, a regular contributor to our magazine. He has a piece in this week's issue of The Nation, which we'll link to on the website. And you should absolutely, if you have not yet, check out his book about Blackwater, Blackwater, the rise of the world's most powerful mercenary army. Jeremy, a great pleasure. Thanks a lot, man. Thank you, Chris. Hey, David Pakman here, host of The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. If you're like me, you're a regular listener of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with Jay Tomlinson. If you like that, I invite you to check out my show, The David Pakman Show. Not only will you hear the best of the left, but you'll also hear some of the worst of the right, including some of the craziest bigots and racists around. But don't worry, I don't agree with them. Check out davidpakman.com, check out our show, continue listening to Best of the Left podcast, and even consider becoming a member of The David Pakman Show, all at davidpakman.com.
three words. Our friend Pakistan. Those are words I've been saying, as you know, if you've been listening for a long time, since, uh, oh, 2003. The, um, the criteria, you may remember, for invading Iraq included three, uh, cri- three major criteria. Uh, invading a neighbor country. harboring terrorists, and possessing weapons of mass destruction. And um, from that moment when those three criteria were made public, on this broadcast, the host of this program asked one question. Uh, okay, it's arguable about Iraq, but we know one country where all three criteria are met, our friend Pakistan. Yes, indeedly doodly. And now, ladies and gentlemen... We uh, have this um, this rush to explain the rush of misinformation or uninformation that came out in the immediate uh, aftermath of the killing of Osama bin Laden. Um, and uh, administration spokesmen have rushed to the Sunday Yak shows to say, well, it's fog of war. Fog of war, after they said that the that, that photograph we saw was of all the top people in the White House, including the President and the Secretary of State, with her hand over her mouth. Oh, my God. Watching real-time video feeds of the operation. Then Leon Panetta went on PBS and said, oh, the video feed cut out during when they got went into the House. And then Bob Woodward in the Washington Post over the weekend said, no, they were watching real-time video feed. But the fog of war had them saying that Osama was armed when he wasn't, had them saying he used a human shield when he didn't. It was just, you know, that kind of fog. You know, you know, it's late night and early morning, low clouds and human shield kind of fog. The, uh, as I, I mentioned earlier, the Bush administration representatives have been rushing to say, oh, well, this was all based on intelligence we got way back when <laughs> George Bush... Uh, enhanced thing we wouldn't have so just for informational purposes ladies and gentlemen here's what we knew back when here's what we knew and thought back when George W. Bush was president well as I say we hadn't heard much from him and uh, I wouldn't necessarily say he's at the center of any command structure and you know again I don't know where he is I uh, <laughs> I I, I, I repeat what I said. I truly am not that concerned about him. Osama bin Laden he's talking about. Not that concerned. He's not at the champion thing. Not the head of the thing. So that's, that's that fine information that he was getting way back when we were enhancing our interrogations. Here's what we know now, ladies and gentlemen. Osama bin Laden had not ventured beyond two rooms for five years. That's an average of a room every two and a half years. That was the million-dollar mansion. That was another thing that we said, our, our government said originally. A million-dollar mansion. Did you see that dump? Wow. This uh, uh, information in the two rooms for five years is um, according to the reported testimony of Osama's wives, three wives who were captured during the U.S. raid. This uh, this wife, Sada, 
who's believed to have been shot in the calf after rushing at U.S. Navy SEALs, believed, said she'd remained on the upper floors of the house since moving there in 2006. Bin Laden had also lived there for that period, she said to confirm. Since 2006, in a community that also housed the Pakistani Military Academy and a number of retired military officials' residences. Sadat said while her husband was living in the house, he never left two rooms, one of them the bedroom where he was killed. He never went anywhere. The wives had been taken to Islamabad for questioning by the Pakistanis. U.S. investigators had not been given access to the wives. And given the tensions following the raid, this is unlikely to happen. So they, maybe, they're, maybe they'll join AQ Khan, who we haven't been able to question either. Meanwhile, of course, Pervez Musharraf, the former president of Pakistan and chief of the army, says... I do agree that the news about bin Laden, living in, bin Laden living in Pakistan is surprising, and a lot of people in Pakistan are not believing that. This is unfortunate. It needs to be investigated. Who slipped up? Why this negligence? Musharraf said it was complete surprise that Osama has been in Pakistan since 2006. He has long denied that Osama was even in Pakistan. Musharraf was ruler of Pakistan from 1999 to 2008. He also passionately defended Pakistan's efforts at tracking down al-Qaeda terrorists. Uh, then on CNN, Musharraf denied that he ever said Osama was not in Pakistan. He has been... Uh, oh, and he also criticized the U.S. for carrying out the mission to kill Osama without coordinating with Pakistani authorities, who are believed to, at least in some cases, have been supporters of al-Qaeda and the Taliban. We heard a lot about how partisanship was set aside in response to the news that a team of Navy SEALs tracked down and killed Osama bin Laden. But that doesn't mean that there weren't efforts to politicize the event. One might expect Fox News to argue that George W. Bush should get credit for the killing, but they weren't alone. In the Washington Post, Dan Balls explained that, quote, Bush put down the marker not long after the September 11th attacks, saying he wanted bin Laden dead or alive, close quote. Balls said that while his critics shrugged this off as cowboy swagger, Bush was serious. Quote, Bush's persistence was palpable. Close quote. Well, except for when Bush said in March 2002 that he didn't think about catching bin Laden much, or when the administration closed its bin Laden unit in 2006. The Post was back on the case on May 5th with a piece headlined, In Bin Laden Victory, Echoes of the Bush Years. This article explicitly said Obama needed to thank Bush. For what? 
Apparently this, quote, after the September 11th, 2001 attacks, Bush waged wars in Afghanistan and Iraq that have forged a military so skilled that it carried out a complicated covert raid with only a minor complication, close quote. So not only are we hearing that torture worked, but the illegal war against Iraq based on lies actually served as a useful training mission. Comedian Will Ferrell did a one-man show at the end of the Bush years in his W character called You're Welcome, America. It was pretty funny. This, on the other hand, isn't. that Jimmy Reefer Cake song for the week now. Call your mama cause Obama got Osama and I'm celebrating with some marijuana. Smoke a joint special operations command. They found Osama's crib in Pakistan. Better call your mama cause Obama got Osama. Two bullets in the head. Now there ain't no drama. But I got myself a boy who's only seven. Had to tell him the whole story of nine now Obama killed Osama singing, yes we can, proves that W was a dummy, but Obama's the man. My boy said, so what? And shook his head, he said, isn't that just another person dead? So call your mama, but don't be hating, it's Mother's Day that we be celebrating. We take care of all mankind, to hell with revenge. This is Jimmy Reefer Kate. On majority.fm. Wow. I gotta say, I gotta say, uh, that was a very good song. And I like how it was also, I like the message. I like the kids saying, uh, it's just another person dead. Yeah. Uh, and um, I also appreciated uh, him working in the assassination of Osama bin Laden with Mother's Day. <laughs> I, I think there, there are two things that go together very well. Peas in a pod. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Tyrone Gale. Last night, President Obama addressed the nation and delivered powerful remarks on the announcement of the death of Osama bin Laden. Predictably, the right-wing media attacked his remarks. In fact, it was Obama who assembled the team. He said so. I, me, my, three of the most used words in President Obama's media appearance last night. Not a single intelligence advisor, not a single national security advisor, military advisor came up with the idea. Now, here's what Obama really said. Over the last 10 years, Thanks to the tireless and heroic work of our military and our counterterrorism professionals, we've made great strides in that effort. What was going to be the Republican reaction to this? Because they can't complain about Obama. 
come on now. After this, you can't. You got to give the guy some credit, right? So, and they did. They did. I mean, they, it would be so ridiculous and foolish to try to say, oh, no, it's not good enough, right? But they had to find a little twist, right? And I was like, okay, what's it going to be? What's it going to be? And it, it, almost all of them did this. Let me give you Eric Cantor, okay, House Majority Leader. He said, this is the beginning of a statement. Nearly a decade ago, in the days after 9-11, President Bush said, whether we bring our enemies to justice or bring justice to our enemies, justice will be done. Tonight, we've learned that justice has been done. I said, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. President Bush. President Bush. What do you have to do with this? Where's President Obama? Cantor continued. The men and women of our armed forces and intelligence community have fought valiantly for the last decade and is a major victory and testament to their dedication. I commend President Obama, who has followed the vigilance of President Bush in bringing bin Laden to justice. Okay, go, 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 go on, dude. Come on, dude. Okay, I like that nice little switcheroo. So President Obama's okay because he followed Bush. Bush had eight years to get bin Laden. He didn't do it. You know what that makes him? A failure. Epic fail. Okay? Now, I'm going to get back to him in a second, but let me get, I'm going to let you finish up in a second on Bush. <laughs> but first, Peter King, one last one. In 2001, President Bush said, we will not tire, we will not falter, and we will not fail. President Bush deserves great credit for putting action behind those words. President Obama deserves equal credit for his resolve in this long war against Al-Qaeda. He gets to Obama after all the credit goes to Bush. Here's the news I have for you that you cannot get beyond. Bush didn't get Osama bin Laden. Didn't do it. Couldn't do it. Didn't want to do it. You think I'm exaggerating? No. Listen to President Bush himself. Listen to what he said about getting bin Laden. Yeah, yeah. Mr. President, in your speeches now, you rarely talk or mention Osama bin Laden. Why yeah. is that? Also, can you tell the American people you have any more information if you know if he is dead or alive? Mm -hmm. Final part here. Yeah. Deep in your heart, don't you truly believe that until you find out if he is dead or alive, you won't really eliminate the threat of... Well, deep in my heart, I know the man's on the run if he's alive at all. And uh, I, I uh, you know, I, who knows if he's hiding in some cave or not. Uh, we hadn't heard from him in a long time. And the idea of focusing on one person... Uh, is um, really uh, indicates to me people don't understand the scope of the mission. Uh, terror is bigger than one person, and uh, he, he's just he's he's a, he's a person who's now been marginalized. Um, his network is uh, his, his host government has been destroyed. Um, he's the ultimate parasite who found weakness, exploited it, and. Um, uh, met his match. Uh, he is, uh, you know, as I mentioned in my speeches, I do mention the fact that this is a fellow who is willing to commit youngsters to their death, and he himself tries to hide if, in fact, he's hiding at all. So I, I don't know where he is. Nor, you know, I, I just don't spend that much time on him. I'll be honest with you. I, wait, wait, wait. wait. I, I didn't hear you right, uh, uh, Mr. President. Can, can I get that one again? So I, I don't know where he is, nor do I, you know, I just don't spend that much time on him. Yeah, yeah, well, that is being honest with us. Or here are the parts that I love in that. The smirk all along. This guy killed nearly 3,000 people <laughs> the whole time. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, right. Bin Laden. Second of all, he says, well, if he's anywhere, he's on the run. He's in a cave somewhere. Except it turns out he was hanging out in a million-dollar compound, 
in a wealthy suburb outside of the capital of Pakistan for five to six years. So he wasn't on the wrong. You were totally wrong because you weren't looking for him. And he says, he's met his match. Yeah, under Bush. He was like, well, this guy's not even looking for me. And in fact, let me give you two pieces of evidence about that. When we had him cornered in Tora Bora, when we first went into Afghanistan, not a lot of people know this. You know how many guys we sent after him? 36 guys. 36. Plus local Afghans. There was a nearby commander, American commander, who wanted to send 5,000 troops after him. He's like, I'm here. Let me go get him. Rumsfeld said, no, do not pursue. It's a huge New York Times story about that. Go read it for yourself, okay? They didn't want the guy, so he slips out and goes to Pakistan. If you're not, still not convinced, in 2006, George W. Bush shut down the operation trying to find bin Laden. Who does that? How can you possibly say that you're interested in getting the guy when you're literally not even pursuing him? You shut down the group pursuing him. And you heard it for yourself. He didn't care to. Now, I bring that up in the context of now the Republicans are talking about how George W. Bush should get credit for this? Oh, you got to be kidding me, man. And you got to have a healthy sense of humor to bring that up. What did George Bush think about getting Bin Laden? Let me hear that again. So I, I don't know where he is. Nor do, you know, I just don't spend that much time on him. I'll be honest with you. By the way, that was not the only time he said that. He said, at least on another occasion, that he's like, oh, I'm not that concerned about him. Well, that's why you didn't get him, and President Obama did. So any of you out there, the Republicans tell, talking about how Bush should get credit, I got a real tall glass of shut-up juice for you. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as 5 dollars a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. All attention now turns to who's going to be the new number one for Al-Qaeda. They've issued a statement saying they are in no rush to appoint their new CEO, but will seek an experienced, internationally known figurehead. Uh, Joe Torre, the former <laughs> Yankees and Dodgers boss, has ruled himself out of running for the uh, Al-Qaeda hot seats. He said, it's not right for me at this stage of my career. Uh, Al-Qaeda number two, Ayman al-Zawahiri, is uh, hotly tipped by the bookies. And, uh, well, he distanced himself from the previous incumbent, saying, in retrospect, Ozzy was a nightmare boss and his PR skills were at best basic. Um, <laughs> the England and Wales cricket board moved swiftly to tie down their coach, Andy Flower, to a new contract. So, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's going to be interesting to see how it all pans out, John. Yeah. Could be musical chairs around the world yep. to see who is jockeying for that position. But first off, Andy, let's admit, Bin Laden is not going to be easy to replace as head of Al-Qaeda. He is the poster boy of hate. In fact, if Al-Qaeda ever decides to do something like Mount Rushmore, one day we may see Bin Laden's face carved into the side of an Afghanistan mountain before being immediately dynamited by Islamic extremists <laughs> for being a false idol. And the point, this is certainly going to be a fascinating campaign 
to watch. So who are the top candidates? Well, as you mentioned, the favourite seems to be Ayman al-Zawahiri, the Egyptian-born surgeon who was bin Laden's closest lunatic. <laughs> In many ways... He's the safe choice for Al-Qaeda. He's very much the establishment candidate, years of experience. The concern seems to be that, as they say, he's notoriously lacking in charisma. But when did fronting the most dangerous terrorist organisation in the world have to be about personality, Andy? <laughs> The fact is, that's you just judge a, it. Yeah, symptomatic of everything that's wrong in modern, modern yes. politics. We've become so shallow with the way that we treat people. <laughs> the fact is, you judge a terrorist on his record, Andy, and this guy's a serious candidate. <laughs> his opponents, sure, they might argue that he's made some very big campaign promises that he might struggle to keep. He said recently American streets would run red with blood. Really? All the streets, Al-Zawahiri, <laughs> I've crunched the numbers, I just don't think he can back that claim up. <laughs> and isn't that exactly the kind of pie-in-the-sky talk that Al-Qaeda needs to move away from? <laughs> anyway, candidate number two, if not Al-Zawahiri, likely seems to be Anwar al-Awlaki, uh, an American citizen turned radical cleric living in Yemen who's been placed on the CIA's official shoot-to-kill list, so... He's certainly qualified. He's a much younger candidate, Andy. He speaks perfect English. Uh, he claims that he can activate the vital younger bloc and encourage them to blow themselves up. Plus, he's American. So it's going to be very hard for people here not to root for him in a way. <laughs> Look, it's, it's, it's like cross-country skiing at the Olympics. No one cares about it, but if Americans end up paying attention, they'll always end up rooting for the American there anyway. <laughs> candidate number three, Saif al-Adel. Seems popular. Another younger man uh, who has always seemed destined for terrible things. Uh, in his high school yearbook, he was voted angriest at prom <laughs> and most likely to go on to run an international terrorist organisation. He made a real stir at his high school uh, by apparently trying to ban the female volleyball team. Uh, <laughs> now, in terms of outsider candidates uh, who don't have a great deal of momentum to them, uh, CNN were talking yesterday about Abu Allah Alibi. Now, the first thing to note about him is that he's actually black. Is Al-Qaeda ready for a black leader, Andy? <laughs> the old guard will say no, but younger people will say that the world is changing and Al-Qaeda has to change with it. Obviously, there are going to be questions around his experience as well. He became famous for escaping from Bagram Air Base, but is that enough? I'm not sure. Maybe in a couple of assassinations' time he'll be ready for the big job. But let's, having said that, let's not rule him out here. Let's not forget another young, charismatic black oh, man with wait, a funny wait, wait, name wait, who wait. no one gave a chance about, who <laughs> rose to power on a wave of support. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I, I don't think he should even be considered until he has shown conclusive proof that he was born a terrorist. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, the, the real outsider candidate seems to be Ilyas Kashmiri. Now, if you've seen any photos of him... I he think has, I ate one of those the other day in a Turkish <laughs> restaurant. <laughs> He has an extremely funny, massive beard and sunglasses. So, he's already wearing a disguise. And I guess the key questions around him will be, is he ambitious enough? He targeted the Eiffel Tower recently, before the plot was discovered, and sure, the Eiffel Tower is a landmark, but it's a very small landmark that doesn't have any people living inside it. It's like targeting the giant donut in Los Angeles. <laughs> is he aiming high enough to become leader? <laughs> uh, now, CBS uh, did an early poll 
of who was the front runner in this race. It's been on the news all over here all week about who's going to come up next. And 3% of Afghani said Al Zawahiri, 2% said Anwar al Alaki, 4% said Bin Laden was still alive, and a whopping 91% said, sorry, I don't have a phone. <laughs> And a sign of how much this race is hotting up is that there's already some attack ads between the candidates circling. Uh, one has a video clip of Al Zawahiri drinking a can of Coke with the VO, I'm an Al Zawahiri says he hates America, but apparently not enough to stop drinking Coca-Cola. Does that sweet infidel sugar water taste good, brother? Al Zawahiri can't be trusted with a minibar, can't be trusted with Al Qaeda. <laughs> Paid for by Jihadists for a Terrible America. <laughs> I got hurt feelings, I got hurt feelings. I feel like a prize asshole, no one even mentions my casserole. I got hurt feelings, I got hurt feelings. Could have said something nice about my professor role. Here's a little story to bring a tear to your eye. I was shopping for a wetsuit to scuba dive. But every suit I tried was too big around the thighs. And the assistant suggests I try a lady size. I got hurt feelings. I got hurt feelings. I'm not gonna wear a lady's wetsuit. I'm a man. I got hurt feelings. I got hurt feelings. Give me a small man's wetsuit, please. I will admit right off the bat, this is petty. I'll admit it. But it is also true. And it has got to drive Democrats in the White House absolutely nuts. Here it is. Republican Senator Dick Lugar. Republican former presidential candidate Rudy Giuliani. Republican former Congressman Tom Davis. The Bush administration's CIA Director General Michael Hayden. The Bush administration's Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. The Bush administration's Homeland Security Secretary Michael Chertoff. The Bush administration's Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld. The Bush administration's Vice President Dick Cheney. The Bush administration's Vice President's daughter Liz Cheney. The week the Obama administration announces it has killed Osama bin Laden, that's the guest list on the Sunday morning political talk shows to talk about it. The Sunday shows are supposedly the apex of political debate, the pulsing, throbbing heart of what's going on in American politics. Is the biggest story in American politics right now retirees from the Bush administration and how they feel about stuff? Plus Dick Luger? Honestly, this is the roster? This is Sunday morning and all its thundering seriousness? Now, among those nine Bush administration officials and other Republican politicians, there were three outliers, Senator John Kerry, also a former White House communications director named Anita Dunn, and one current White House official, Tom Donilon, the national security advisor. So there were those three. But the week the Obama administration announces that bin Laden is dead, the invitees to the adults table, the measure of seriousness and importance in Washington is three to one Bush administration and Republican officials. Why is that? You win, it's your show now. So what's it gonna be? Cause people will tune in. How many train wrecks do we need to see? Before we lose touch, oh. And we thought this was low. Well, it's bad getting worse, oh. Where'd all the good people go? I've been changing channels, I don't see them on the TV shows. Where'd all the good people go? Two words. Two little words. The Sunday morning yak shows this week uh, were filled with representatives of the Bush administration. Somebody opened the coffin and there they came, walking out, uh, to opine on the 
killing of Osama bin Laden. Dick Cheney looking good, looking better on Fox. Uh, Donald Rumsfeld, I think on Meet the Press, they were all out there. Um, and among the things, among the items on their agenda, ladies and gentlemen, were, was, you know, this enhanced interrogation really paid off. We really should go back to it. And uh, to buttress their case, I said buttress their case, they um, cited statements by Leon Panetta and some other folks saying, well, th- we got intelligence from enhanced interrogation. Um, fairly ambiguous statements about getting some leads from enhanced interrogation. And by enhanced interrogation, of course, we're talking about waterboarding and other things that are, last time I looked, prohibited by international <laughs> international law. Pardon me. And um, But it's the ambiguity of those statements that they were citing that reminded me of uh, something, of those two little words. I mentioned at the at the top here that were not spoken by any of the tough interrogators on the Sunday morning yak shows as this uh, story was being laid out before them. And those two words are false leads. And the best I can find out from what I read, the enhanced interrogation techniques produced a lot of false leads as these guys lied and gave out, oh, said, oh, he's not, in terms of the courier that, uh, in fact, ultimately led to Osama bin Laden, uh, I believe it was Alibi, one of the uh, high-value detainees, uh, said, oh, he's he's retired, he's not working for him anymore. Uh, and others uh, gave false leads, which, according to some observers, took intelligence agencies' time, resources to chase down time and resources that they might have used to, you know, you know the rest of that. Anyway, yes, the the push for bringing waterboarding back has begun, ladies and gentlemen. Strap in. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Danny Herrera. In the aftermath of Osama bin Laden's death, there is considerable dispute among experts over whether torture played a role in developing critical intelligence that led officials to bin Laden's whereabouts. But that's not what Fox News viewers are being told. Enhanced uh, interrogation techniques, let's call it what it is, it's waterboarding. And you know what? It is because of waterboarding that Osama bin Laden is dead and everybody knows it. It's it's very obvious now that enhanced interrogations, uh, rendition, black sites, that the harsh questioning led to the intelligence, thanks to the Bush administration. It's gotten to the point where they're still debating whether waterboarding is torture. This here, here's enhanced techniques, waterboarding, hypothermia, stress uh, positions, abdomen slaps. The other alternatives are yelling loud, loud music, sleep deprivation, right. uh, barking dogs. By the way, that's a, that's a typical weekend at my house with my 12-year-old son. Barack Obama, all right, the nicest Nobel Peace Prize winner to ever preside over three wars simultaneously, just successfully ordered his first contract killing. And we're going to take a look at it and see if it hurts his peace 
Pai's credentials, and then how the press covered it. The important thing is how the press frames it. How do they go at it? Well, here's Nightline. Right now, somewhere on planet Earth, a U.S. Navy SEAL is walking around thinking, I just shot Osama bin Laden in the face. Okay. So. <laughs> and right now there's a TV executive thinking, I wish I could shoot myself in the head. <laughs> and we look at the somber tone that was struck by our college students as they pondered the real meaning of Osama bin Laden's death. You're all students, right? Yeah! So how are you feeling about what happened to you? I feel great right now! Seems for the kids that finally killing Osama bin Laden has made America's youth pensive about the true cost of the war on terror. <laughs> Barack Obama, our favorite guy, put a bullet in the head of uh, Osama bin Laden, and uh, so I'm watching. But let's. I'm going to just take us through some of the television coverage of it, some of the news coverage. And uh, we'll start off with the clip I played at the top of the show. Uh, I was watching uh, Bill O'Reilly. He had the chairman of the Homeland Security Department uh, uh, Committee and the Congress on uh, Representative Peter King. And here is uh, here's their little bit of their conversation. Right off the bat, tell me something I don't know. Tell us something we don't know. Well, I don't know if everyone knows this or not, but you, uh, you mentioned the fact that uh, we obtained information several years ago, vital information about the courier for Obama. We obtained that information through waterboarding. And uh, so for those who say that waterboarding doesn't work, to say that it should be stopped and never used again, we got vital information which uh, directly led us to bin Laden. Wow. Also, wait, wait, let me stop you there. I did not know that, and I'm sure most of my audience did not at all. Key information we got on a very, very vital that, part. That is absolutely fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. You're not going to hear that on the other networks, I guarantee you. Okay, I don't even know why he says that. I've been hearing nothing but that. And, and also, other. just the idea, well, Peter King has just said this. It has to be true. Yeah. You know, he doesn't like challenge it at all where did you hear right. that how do you know that He's like as, as if like obama and his aides don't really have access to the real peter king happens yes. to really know well he's got to be credible he sounds like albert finney doing an american accent <laughs> <laughs> doesn't he sound like albert he finney yes he does now some people some people uh disagree with peter king uh like john mccain who had just gotten briefed by cia director leon panetta and was asked about the torture and if it had anything to do with this operation and he said this so far, I know of no information that was obtained which would have been useful that uh, by, quote, enhanced interrogation. Okay, so, but, uh, and that was even backed up by Donald Rumsfeld. Now, anybody who should know anything about torture it would be Donald Rumsfeld, right? So here's Donnie. It is true, as I understand it, that some information that came from normal interrogation approaches in Guantanamo did lead to information that was beneficial in this instance. Uh, but it was not harsh uh, treatments, and it was not waterboarding. Okay, so that was on Monday. That was uh, mm -hmm. so he said not. We got the information wasn't harsh. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the enhanced, and they got some. And but some people disagree with him uh, with Donald Rumsfeld. Like for instance, um, anyone who suggests that the enhanced techniques, let's be blunt, waterboarding, uh, did not produce an enormous amount of valuable. Uh, intelligence just isn't facing the truth. Okay, well, <laughs> I wish you would go back and tell yourself that. The torture isn't as um, painful as when they pull these facts out of their ass. <laughs> 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 but, uh, and, and so this, this really is bringing up this debate again, this, yeah. uh, this torture debate. And the reason why this debate is happening is because Barack Obama chose to not prosecute people who tortured?
And that's why it's still like this unsettled question. And, uh, you know, the reason why you have to pr uh, prosecute people who tortured was because if you don't, then people will keep doing it in the future. Right. And, and there, you know, it's. It's amazing how they're all latching on to torture and waterboarding as like, you know, the one thing that they want to emphasize is that we tortured and waterboarded people. The one thing that to justify yeah. the incompetence of the Bush-Cheney administration. Could we, could we ease into the waterboarding and just waterboard Goldman Sachs executives and just <laughs> see how that works? Because I don't think anybody would oppose that. No. Well, um, well, is it, but is it torture? I mean, here, here's what Donnie Rumsfeld said. People about. are equating waterboarding with torture, and I think that's a mistake. Oh, sure, of course you would, because you were the guy who ordered it. That would be uh, mm -hmm. you, you wouldn't. Want also, it. I don't understand about the logic. If it isn't torture, then why is it? Why do it? You know, it, right? It, yeah, exactly. It, if it doesn't make someone physically in, in, in enough the, pain mm -hmm. to give up the information, and here's here's another thing. If it does work, if, 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 like he said, it was an enormously successful program, we got lots of information, why would you stop? Mm -hmm. Why would you stop doing it? Why wouldn't you do it all the time? Mm. I don't know. That, 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 that's, no one ever asked, I have yet to hear someone ask it a creates, pro torture person that question. Well, the way it, waterboarding creates a heightened relationship between uh, the lungs and oxygen. Well, also <laughs> the way, you know, one of the reasons why, uh, that no one is asking that is because the media seems to be in favor of torture. Yes. Um, and I've noticed that like Brian Williams and I saw Martin Bashir, um, they, the way they phrase their question is, doesn't this prove that torture works and enhance interrogation and waterboarding is a, is a technique that we should use? That's how, when Brian Williams talked to Leon Bennett, that's how he, Phrased his question from, really? from my memory. Yes. Yeah. Okay. You know, I I did see that interview, but I don't remember. Uh, I, I was my head was already spinning, and I was paying more attention to Leon Panetta in that, mm -hmm. and he was really parsing his words to mm -hmm. the point where it wasn't worth playing on the show. Yes. But maybe the important thing was Brian Williams asking the question, and I missed it. Well, Thanks, they, Frank. I think a lot Thanks of these... for embarrassing me on the show, Frank. <laughs> I, I think uh, Brian Brian Williams doesn't uh, understand the the real pain of torture. I'm going to assume he's never had to watch his own show. <laughs> Yes. Well, well I, a I, lot of the mainstream media, they don't, they're, they're, they lean in favor of things like torture because the, the whole reason that it happened was the uh, Iraq war, which they played a big part in making happen. Yes. So. But I don't think Brian Williams even consciously does that. I just mm -hmm. think they're, they're, I, I don't think it's a, uh, at NBC News and the other major networks, I don't think it's a conscious decision to censor things. I think they just want to give, uh, just take the easiest route uh, yeah. to, to to presenting stuff. Mm. I think you know when you talk about Brian Williams, I don't think that he's doing it consciously either. I think the reason why he rose to that position because it comes so unconsciously to him. Yes, right, because right. it's such a reflex to him. Because he's sounds... not curious. He doesn't seem to be a curious person. No, he, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. It's not an important quality in journalism. No, yeah, he doesn't <laughs> seem to under. He doesn't seem to have a belief in the importance of what he's doing. Yes. He really does. He doesn't. He doesn't think that he has a mission to inform people. I don't think yes. Brian Williams does that. And or think about a standard that has maybe been lost in. Um, yeah, that by medi by medium. I would disagree with Frank. I don't think that the media intentionally placates the right. I think that in this instance they went for torture because it's it's good. It's prurient. It's it's exciting. It's it's 
It's glamorous. There's something. There's a sensational quality. There's a sensational to it. quality, and the 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 reality is all other intelligence gathering is incredibly dull. Yeah. Right. Like, <laughs> like it's really boring. Sure. It's know? certainly not as exciting as torturing mm-hmm. someone. That yeah. is certainly true. Now, Donald Rumsfeld said that if you equate waterboarding with torture, it's wrong. Well, let's ask a former CIA guy and the author of The Interrogator. Does uh, waterboarding break any laws or regulations, treaties, executive orders, anything like that? But the fact is that it transgresses the Uniform Code of uh, Military Justice, the Convention Against Torture, the Geneva Conventions, Executive Order 12333 for the CIA. It's quite clear. Okay, so you are making a mistake if you say it's torture, I guess. (laughs) Even though it does all those things, uh, because that's what Donald Rumsfeld said. I don't even know what this clip is, and I'm going to play it. People are equating waterboarding with torture. And I think that's a mistake. Okay, I guess I guess you would say so. Um, Let's be clear: Donald Rumsfeld didn't think that was a mistake, and one attorney in the White House thought you. that was yes. a mistake. Do you yes. think Donald Rumsfeld tortured just because he's so angry that he's a senior and he still sounds like he's in puberty? <laughs> I think you're making a mistake when you you're, you're equating torture with torture. I, I don't think that that's. You, should, you really make a mistake yeah. when you equate torture with torture. Donald Rumsfeld had a little bit more to say. Uh, the, the president of the United States authorized the waterboarding. It was done to three people by the CIA, not by the military, and it produced an enormous amount of very, very valuable intelligence information. See, it's not torture because Donald Rumsfeld said it wasn't and right. because the president ordered it and because the CIA did it and it was only done to three people. So if it's only done to three people, that means it's not tor- – what the hell kind of logic is that? And let's go back to the CIA guy. The, the information that eventually uh, broke the uh, case and let us uh, find Osama bin Laden was obtained a year after any enhanced interrogation techniques were stopped with him and had nothing directly to do with them. So I think the answer for that narrow fact is that the uh, current rewriting of history is wrong. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Now, speaking of the future of the war on terror, today the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, Carl Levin, said he thinks the death of bin Laden reinforced the president's intention to move toward, quote, a robust reduction of U.S. troops from Afghanistan this summer. It's about time we got out of a long conflict that has resulted in the deaths of more than 1,500 American troops 
Add that to the number of U.S. soldiers killed in Iraq, and you see that the supposed hunt for bin Laden in those countries has cost us more than 6,000 American lives. Not to mention that so far, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq have cost us $1.5 trillion. Joining me now uh, is Robert Greenwald, director of the Brave New Films and producer of documentaries Rethink Afghanistan and Iraq for Sale, The War Profiteers. Uh, Robert, well, <laughs> I know your opinion on this. We, we got some different opinions here a little earlier but about what's the more effective way to go. But I want to focus on what, what, again, in the future. So what do we do in Afghanistan going forward now that we've gotten bin Laden? We do the sensible and sane and rational thing. We get the troops out as quickly as possible. It's a military occupation which is creating enemies, which is creating people who hate the fact that their country is being taken over. And we work for the security of the United States, which does not mean this occupation. There's lots that we could do, Cenk, and you know it. There's enormous resources, enormous values that this country has. We are doing none of that every time we occupy another country and wind up being the enemy. You know, Robert, some might say, hey, look, we were telling Afghanistan all along, hey, we're going to rebuild. Uh, it's the pottery barn rule. If you break it, you own it. Uh, and now if after getting bin Laden, we say, hey, see, you wouldn't want to be you. Doesn't that say, hey, we were never really serious about your country. We just had the objective of getting bin Laden and, and that's why we're leaving. Well, we're not rebuilding Afghanistan. I mean, I was there when you get off the plane and you look around and you see on every block millions and millions of dollars being spent on military solutions. You see people starving. You see people without jobs and without education. It's outrageous to contend that we are there rebuilding them. We're not. We're destroying. And that's the great pain. And that's what's so profoundly wrong about this analysis is think about it. A country, you come in and you occupy another country. How do you expect them to uh, then think you're friends and then think you're there to help the country. And the single biggest reason for the increase in the Taliban is our occupation. They're a nationalist organization and they thrive on having an enemy who comes in and takes over. Right. You know, I do want to mention one other point before we leave that I think not a lot of other people are going to talk about today. My God, I know you did a movie about it. My God, how much did we waste in Iraq when you see that we got bin Laden in Pakistan? I don't know if there's anybody in the country who can tell us what in the world Iraq had to do with getting al-Qaeda and bin Laden. Well, it didn't have anything to do with it. And, you know, in Afghanistan, there are more contractors than there are military. And the amount of money, uh, the New York Times had a brilliant article about it recently, the hundreds of millions and ultimately billions, billions of our tax dollars that are going to private contractors and are going to corruption is off the scales. And here we are worrying about, you know, having paying firemen and policemen and teachers. It just profoundly is wrong. It's a against the values and it's against everything that we believe in. from Rhode Island. Um, I just listened to your show, and I love you. I just, well, not you personally. I love your show. And 
this one was hard for me. Um, I am on the younger side. I did spend, I'm 22, so Osama has been legitimately 11 years of my life, which is fully half of my life. Um, I don't know if I can do justice to the effect that the war had on my day-to-day living. I, I don't, I really can't. Um, I'm in a military family. My family was torn apart. My mom didn't handle my dad going over so well. Uh, long story short, I, I ended up taking a lot of responsibility for younger kids that, you know, I'm not regretting and I'm not sad that I did. But what I guess I'm trying to say is your show, I, I feel I was in front of the White House after I heard Osama bin Laden was killed. I was there. And I can guarantee you I wasn't chanting. I, I don't know if there's any other people that are crying, but I was just bawling. I, I couldn't handle it. I don't know. I'm not happy he's dead. But it's not like nothing happens. It's just feeling this huge weight that's just been on me that I didn't even realize was there. And I know it's imposed by the people who decided we needed to go to our war in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I know it's, you know, he was just the catalyst. But the fact that, you know, again, he's been alive for, well, all of my lifetime, clearly. But he's been still alive and a fugitive and, you know, number one enemy, et cetera, et cetera, for 11 years of my life. And I just accepted that he would never be gone. And now he's gone. I cried. I didn't stop crying. And I guess it's hard to explain why it matters and why it's, I don't even want to say a victory, why it's such a crucial part and a central part to my life that I'm I'm always going to remember that night. I'm always going to remember just like I remember the night my dad got sent over. It's not something I'll ever easily forget. And I'm not saying that the people celebrating were wrong, but the people celebrating were much more likely to give me comfort than the people who heard I went to the White House the day after. Much more likely. I've actually lost a couple of friends because I went to the White House. I don't know. Either way, I just offer you a different perspective. Um, Love your show. Please continue. If you know, my job ever decides to pay me a little bit more, hopefully I'll start donating. Have a great day. I'm calling from DC. Bye. Hey, Jay, this is Todd from City Example. Yeah, on the comments about being happy about the death of Osama bin Laden, um, you know, I, I too was like, completely kind of like put off by the elation and the joy swelling up in me um, you know over someone's death um, I mean and part of that could be that you know uh, our wrong-headed response has really hit home hit close to home I mean my my brother-in-law has been deployed five times now um, you know, if 
you've seen Hurt Locker, you see what he does. I mean, his, um, his team got wiped out last time in Iraq, you know, and um, <laughs> we happened to get the news as we were waiting for his um, plane to land, you know, he's coming back from Afghanistan, so, you know, I look at it, um, you know, the, I look at Osama bin Laden's death as, you know, it's like, finally, there's a light at the end of the door, you know, maybe we can get the fuck out of Afghanistan, you know, and bring us, our boys and girls home, you know, and that's what makes me happy about it, I'm not going to run out in the street and chant USA, and I'm, you know, it was one night, Basically, you know, if we'd gone on for a couple of days, I would have been really un- uneasy with the, with that. But, you know, it was one night, so I'm willing to give people a pass. You know, I wasn't willing to, to run out there and join them. Actually, I had more important things to do, like welcoming my brother-in-law back, giving him a hug when he got off that bus. So anyway, those are my thoughts. Take care. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. And a huge thanks to both of the people who called in and left the messages that I just played. If you are one of those people who skips through the voicemails, you should really go back and listen to these. Um, they're good, good stuff, incredibly unique perspectives on the Bin Laden news. And, uh, you know, if there's one thing I love... It is when a debate between two opposing sides gets really complicated <laughs> and nuanced. Uh, I love that. And so, you know, as, as you guys have probably heard, either through what I said or through the show that I produced on the Bin Laden news in particular, that I, I personally really come down on the side of, you know, exuberance over this news is, is inappropriate or at least in poor taste. And, you know, that's based on, my experience of the world over the last 10 years, that is how I reacted to it. That's that's the reaction I like to see from other people because it's the same as mine. Uh, you know, and then the reaction I really, really dislike is the kind of mindless exuberance and, you know, joyful bloodlust. But uh, the two voicemails today really highlighted that gigantic gray area in the middle between those two extremes. So there's a lot that you could say about uh, about these two voicemails and, and what they had to say about their feelings. But the one thing you could not say is that these people aren't being thoughtful about it. So, man, like, boy, do I not begrudge them for feeling however they want to feel in whatever sort of incredibly complicated way uh, they want to. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of glad, uh, as I often am, when... As I say, whether I'm you know being challenged in, in the way I think or or uh, just more depth and nuance is brought to uh, a, a conversation, it gives me the opportunity to go a little bit deeper on my thoughts and and clarify a little bit further. So as much as it you know may have sounded before like I had my own perspective and I expected other people to either join me in that perspective or disagree with me, you know th- this uh, gives me that opportunity again to. Um, you, you know, get back into that nuance and reiterate something I've said before 
which is that I don't know how other people experience the world. And I recognize that other people's experiences give them an entirely different worldview. Uh, you know, I, I stole this idea from South Park and they, they talked about it in reference to, uh, you know, the black experience in America and the little white kid kept insisting that he, he understood. He's like, no, 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 I, racism. I get it. It's terrible. Like I'm, I'm on your side. And, and the African-American kid would say, you know, you don't really get it. You just don't get it. And he's like, no, 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 I do. I get it. I get it. And then at the end, his epiphany was, you know what? I don't get it. I, I, I don't get it. I couldn't possibly get it. I never will get it. And that's as close as I can come to getting it. And that's exactly how I feel about pretty much everybody else in the world who has a different experience than me. You know, I, uh, I, I've absolutely come to terms with knowing that I don't get it. I don't know what it's like to have um, a family member in the military and have my personal life uh, torn apart in any one of a variety of ways uh, because of the wars that we're involved in. You know, I, I don't get it. I don't know how that makes you uh, change your perspective on the world and, and alter your reaction to news like bin Laden being killed. So, um, you know, there are an infinite number of experiences people can have that make them react differently to different things. And I'm really grateful that we got a little glimpse into a couple of them today. Stay tuned at the end of the show if you are interested. Uh, as before, I have so many voicemails to get through. I'm going to tack on a bunch at the end. But for now, I want to thank a couple of members. First, uh, Sarah E. signed up for a uh, leftist year-long membership back on January 21st. So thank you very much, Sarah. And uh, Simon G. signed up for a leftist membership back on September 22nd, um, a monthly paying member, and has stuck with the show since then. So huge thanks to Sarah and Simon and all of the members and donors who make the show possible. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone everyone you know about it and stay tuned into the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 11 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black now, black and white, Burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who'll take you out any open door This is not my life It's just a fond flower to a friend It's not what I'm like Hey Jay, this is Cody from Washington State, and I just had some positive feedback. Um, I just wanted to let you know, I always get very, very excited whenever I see that you have a clip from Citizen Radio or Dan Savage, and and I also love when you have songs by They Might Be Giants or Fly to the Concords. That just that pretty much makes my day. So yeah, I just wanted to let you know that, and I uh, love the show. Okay, thanks. Bye. Jay, thank you for all you do. I live in Kentucky and work in Tennessee. Suffice it to say, not too many progressive minds around. Even worse, too many rabid conservatives. Thank you for a glimmer of conscientious 
rational political thought. I am calling to encourage listeners to introduce this program to their local, state, and national politicians. Jay has refined the best public progressive statements on individual subjects and line them up for re-expression. This program is the best tool to help define political progressive language. Fox News does this for conservatives. Why should progressives be embarrassed to use their hard work and use the hard work of so many other commentators to their advantage? Email your representatives a link to the best of the left. Thanks. Hi, everyone. This is Patrick from Los Angeles. Um, I just listened to the comments about the death of Bin Laden, and uh, wouldn't you know it, I was feeling uh, very much the same way. It was good to hear somebody else who um, who felt that way. I, I just think that celebrating someone's death, even if we didn't like what the person did or stood for, uh, it just seems kind of grisly and morbid, like a public execution taking place during the Middle Ages. Uh, people really celebrating the fact that, you know, someone, an old man got shot in the head. Again, regardless of whether we thought he was a particularly worthwhile person, it, it just, it struck me um, as strangely bloodlustful. And the other thing is, I'm not like a 9-11 conspiracy person, but I really would have preferred uh, to see the man go to trial. Because, as I recall, he didn't, you know, he, he, he denied for a long time having anything to do with 9-11, despite, you know, being an admitted terrorist and everything else. And, uh, you know, the person who everyone seems to think was behind 9-11, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, is now having his trial in Guantanamo Bay, which is going to be a kangaroo court where there's no um, documentation, no records, anything, and he's probably just going to get executed and we're going to read about it in the paper one day. Anyway, that's all. Um, keep up the great work. Love the podcast. And uh, all you best liberal listeners, have a good day. Hi, this is Chris in Middletown, New York. Is it progressive to say you're glad Osama bin Laden is dead and not in a courtroom? Is it progressive to say neither the rule of law nor the U.S. Constitution matter anymore? Is it progressive to blame Osama bin Laden or al-Qaeda for 9-11 when there never has been any supporting evidence to prove guilt? Is it progressive to perpetuate the lies which we call the war on terror? Is it progressive to perpetuate the lie that U.S. forces killed Osama bin Laden, a man who was killed years ago? Is it progressive to support the troops, who are worse than any terrorist when it comes to killing mass numbers of innocent people? Does the truth matter anymore? Does fact really trump Faith? No. Osama bin Laden didn't plant explosives in World Trade Center 1, 2, and 7. We never had a proper investigation. America was duped into fear of boogeymen to justify a war on terror that would rob the American people and give their children's future over to the richest war makers in the history of humanity. When a lot of left-leaning um, talking heads start sounding like Rush Limbaugh, I get worried. Well, this is not about Osama bin Laden. That was a lie. There, where's the proof? Why isn't anyone asking questions pertaining to what is the truth? Did Osama bin Laden do 9-11? Did Al-Qaeda do 9-11? And was Osama bin Laden recently killed or was he dead for years? This is manipulation. It's like Goldstein in 1984. Thanks for Cheers.